Jesus is greater than religion. I think probably most people would agree with that, at least most who consider themselves to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. For the past almost nine months or so now, we've been on a journey together here, working our way systematically through the book of Acts and our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, where we've witnessed those first century followers of Jesus Christ, and most recently the Apostle Paul, doing their level best to convince the religious people of their day of that very fact, that Jesus was greater than their religion. In fact, Paul's journey and the journey of the entire early church really is the story of a great collision between the religious culture of the day and the newly forming church of Jesus Christ. And of course, the whole story is the result of a a cataclysmic event on a hill outside of Jerusalem where one man unlike any other, was nailed to a cross, and the world in that moment was literally shaken. It was a defining moment in history when religion officially became not enough, and Jesus Christ became more than enough. And I just want to clarify my definition of religion in the context of this message this morning, because the word religion in and of itself is not a bad word, although we've made it one. Religion can refer to a set of beliefs or practices that honor and bring glory to God. And that is a very deep and rich and meaningful application of that word. Okay, that's not what I'm referring to today. When I talk about religion or religious behavior, I'm not referring to the the faith in or devotion to the gospel or even God's law. All right, God's universal law has always been and is still important. God's universal law is necessary. God's universal law is in fact required scripturally even today. In 1 Corinthians 11:2, Paul wrote to the church and he said, Remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And then in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2:15, Paul wrote, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. Okay, these traditions were even more important in the first century because everyone wasn't carrying a Bible around with them when they came to church. They couldn't all just uh, go home and look up a passage of Scripture on their own whenever they wanted to, like we can today, okay? They relied heavily on memorizing the teachings of the apostles and the elders, and so keeping the religious traditions would help them remember those teachings and their commitments that they made to God. Likewise, today, there's still a place for religious tradition in the church, particularly when it points us to Jesus Christ, like keeping the Lord's Supper when we have communion together here, or practicing water baptism, all right? And remember, Paul and Peter and the apostles, not to mention Jesus himself, continued to recognize the religious feasts and the celebrations and the ceremonial laws in their time. The cultural split between the first century Christian community and the Jewish community didn't happen until A.D. 70 when the Roman armies came in and destroyed Jerusalem and, of course, the temple, at which point the Jews fled from Jerusalem and they dispersed to nations all over the world. It was at that point then that the Christian and Jewish communities began to develop separate identities, but the Jewish traditions continued for both. So there's a place for religious tradition in the church, and that's really another sermon for another day. In respect to religion, though, the problem arises when religious behavior without God in the center of it becomes sacred in and of itself. So when I talk about religion in the context of this message this morning, I'm referring to a set of rules or standards applied in any given culture that are practiced in place of true service and devotion to God. 
And more often than not, what we find in Scripture are men and women taking those commands that were initially instituted by God and twisting them to mean something other than what God had intended. And in many cases, even supplanting their own rules in place of true worship. Okay, so today when I talk about religion, just know that I'm referring to any list of rules or behavior that govern our lives without the Holy Spirit of Christ ruling in our hearts. All right, because religion alone has never held the answers to life's most difficult questions. Religion alone has never been able to adequately fill the void that exists in people who are searching for meaning and purpose. Religion has never been able to save anyone from an eternity apart from the God who created us. Religion alone is not nor has it ever been enough. Which is why we need more than a religion. It's why religion without the work of Christ doesn't work. Because religion is about a set of rules. It's behavior modification. It offers lessons in morality and ethics and commitment and discipline, which are all very admirable. And living your life by strict religious principles can certainly improve the quality of your life in some ways. But none of those principles alone can offer any real meaning or purpose. Answers cannot be found for life in a code of conduct. This world needs more than a religion because life is full of questions that religion cannot answer. And people that are searching for that meaning and that purpose will always be left wanting when all they have to turn to is an empty religious experience. And yet there are many who still try, of course. And those who do turn to religious behavior for answers both then and now, whether their claim is Christian or Muslim or Mormon or Hindu or Jewish, you fill in the blank. Those who rely on religion without Christ serve a belief system that reduces this life down to a set of rules, which then divides people into those who are bound by the rules and unable to see past them, and those who are alienated from others because they're repulsed by the rules. And outside of all of that, there's Jesus Christ, who broke the rules. He didn't violate God's law. In fact, he fulfilled God's law. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Christ that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament. He didn't break God's law. He destroyed men's rules, which had become really a perverted version of God's true law. And men began to deify, to worship the rules that governed them rather than the God who created them. Okay, And then Jesus came along and he obliterated men's rules men's perceptions, men's expectations. And quite frankly, he's still doing that today through some elements of his church, at least the ones who are truly following him and not simply some lifeless uh, set of mandates that they follow. And this is precisely the work that the Apostle Paul was trying to continue that Jesus and his disciples started to teach the people of his day that there was something better than an empty religion. Jesus was and is greater than religion. And so today, as we continue our story, we're going to pick up the text where we left off last week in Acts chapter 21, starting on verse 15, with a message entitled, Religion is Simple, Life is Not. And we'll attempt in this study of our text today to maybe bring some clarity to the difference, and maybe create some clear separation between a life spent following a religion and a life spent following Jesus Christ, okay? So let's turn there together if you have your Bible. And we'll have it on the screen as well here. Uh, Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 15. 
And just before we read that as a review, let me mention, for those of you who may not have been here last week, Paul and his traveling companions, which includes Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, have been traveling all over Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. And uh, they hit Greece, a lot of the Greek Isles, Macedonia, Cyprus, parts of Syria, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're planting churches, and they're training church leaders, and generally speaking, running for their lives in the process for more than a decade at this point. You remember Paul uh, was stoned by an angry mob to the point that everyone thought he was dead in chapter 14 in Lystra. He was beaten and imprisoned in chapter 16 in Philippi. Uh, An angry mob comes after him in chapter 17 in Thessalonica. So his fellow Christians smuggle him out by night to Berea. But the angry mob shows up in Berea as well, still pursuing him. So he gets smuggled to Athens where the people mock him at the Oropagus before he leaves Corinth when he's trying to teach. And then a riot is stirred up against him in Ephesus in chapter 19, where as many as 25,000 angry people gather in the city theater about to turn the city upside down looking for Paul. This is Paul's life, stoned to near death, beaten with rods, imprisoned, threatened, mocked, pursued, falsely accused, forced to run for his life from one city to the next under the cover of night. And, and after all of that, after all that he'd been through for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as if he hadn't done enough at that point to earn a break, Paul now makes his way to Jerusalem, the great city, because in chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, Not knowing what will happen to me there. Constrained means bound. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of of the grace of God. This doesn't sound to me like someone who is merely religious. It sounds to me like someone who is relentlessly living for something bigger than himself. In fact, if you examine the life and what we know of the death of each of Jesus' original disciples, save Judas Iscariot, he wasn't a true follower of Christ anyway, what you find at the time of Jesus' arrest and resurrection is a group of men who scattered in fear as far from the danger as they could get. And it was only after the resurrection of Jesus that they encountered him in the flesh when they ate with him and they touched his hands and they touched his side. It was only after they saw firsthand that he was, in fact, who he said he was, that they went on, just like Paul after them, to witness to others and to testify to the gospel without fear of what men might do to them. Okay? They didn't do all of that for a religion. And we know that because days before they went out and began risking everything for the gospel to the point that most of them were killed for it. Just days before that, they were running scared. So what changed their minds? It wasn't a set of rules or some good moral teachings that they received from Jesus before he died. No way. The same men who were running scared for their lives a few days earlier, we now see giving up their lives just like Paul. Why would they do that? If Jesus had not really been raised from the dead. Why would you do that, right? I mean, maybe you could understand one or two of them falling off their rocker and becoming crazy religionists willing to die for a set of rules. But not all of them. 
The fact is this had nothing to do with religion. This was about men and women who experienced Jesus Christ firsthand, alive and well, after they watched religion murder him. And in chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans, Paul writes that the spirit of who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8, 11. Okay? Paul understood that his mission was about leading people away from religion and toward a relationship with a living God. And once that reality took hold in Paul's life, not even going to Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to be beaten and imprisoned and probably killed, could stop him from telling others about Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's pick up our story. We'll start at uh, verse 15 as Paul and his friends leave Caesarea and they're heading to Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, so it's about 62 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem by road, and Paul and his companions arrived there, it's probably about the spring of A.D. 57, to the house of a Cypriot, a guy from Cyprus, who's described as an early disciple. And so this Manasseh was probably known by many of the believers at the time because he'd been around as a part of the church for a long time and he could be trusted to host the travelers at his home. Although as N.T. Wright describes it, he says this would be the last friendly roof under which Paul would ever stay. Okay, verse 17, let's keep reading. When we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Okay, so this is James the Just. He's the brother of Jesus Christ. Who's an elder now in the church, most likely the lead elder or senior pastor in our vernacular of the church at Jerusalem. And it says that all the elders were present. It means that James and all the other pastors were there. All right, verse 19. After greeting them, they related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So this is a good day. Right? Paul is reunited with his friends, all of these pastors in Jerusalem, which had to be a wonderful feeling to be with all of these great men of God who had been through so much together and worked so tirelessly over the years through almost constant persecution in order to spread the gospel. And here they are together again, and Paul is sharing with them all of the incredible, amazing, miraculous things that God has done among the people that he's been ministering to over the years. And the response from James and the other pastors may have been a bit unexpected. Okay? Paul has just played back the highlight reel of the greatest evangelistic tour of all time. Up to that point, certainly. And the response is, Paul, this is great. This is awesome. Praise God. And now we have some good news to tell you and we have some bad news. Let's read verse 20. And then when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. That's great news. So far, so good. And then, verse 21, they dropped the hammer. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. You can almost hear the panic in their voices. Paul has just finished telling them not only about the thousands that have accepted the gospel, the churches that have been planted, the miracles that have been performed, 
all of the great ministry that has taken place, but he has surely relayed to them as well the countless times and almost unbelievable circumstances when he was in the worst way with no perceivable means of escape, and yet time and again, God kept Paul alive, saving him from the hands of angry mobs of people, delivering him from prison, getting him through the most horrific persecutions. And the response is, Paul, that's wonderful. But have you heard what the people are saying about you? What are we going to do? I wish I could have been there to see the look on Paul's face in that moment. You can almost hear him thinking, seriously, guys, I just told you about all of the astounding things that God has done and you're worried about the rumors going around town about me. Really? At that moment, these men were more concerned with the religious culture in Jerusalem than the extraordinary work of the gospel going on all around the world. But Jesus didn't come to establish a culture. He came to establish a kingdom. And there's a big difference. Jesus wasn't focused on changing the culture, despite a lot of popular teaching today. He was not focused on changing the culture. He was focused on establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, by doing that, certainly that can and will affect the culture. But that is a byproduct of what happens when the gospel takes root in the hearts of men and women within any given culture. The kingdom of God is primarily established within us, followers of Christ. Jesus' primary work on this earth was internal, not external. His primary focus was what was happening in the hearts of men and women, not on the political climate of the day or the social laws or moral customs in any given city. He did, of course, say a lot about social issues and external works, like taking care of the poor and widows and orphans, but not because he was trying to establish a more moral or more religious culture. He did what he did, and he taught what he taught because the gospel, allegiance to him and his teachings, demands that love rules our hearts. And the result of that is that we take care of each other because we love each other, not because it's a rule to be checked off on some religious list. Can you see the difference? It's a matter of what motivates us, religious obligation or a love for Christ and others born out of a very real relationship with him that we're able to have today because his spirit lives inside of us. You see, religion can change our behavior. Jesus Christ can change our hearts. And when he rules in our hearts, his kingdom is established in us. And then it is perpetuated through us as we work together as the church, which is simply the community of believers coming together. Okay, Jesus didn't come to establish a culture. He came to establish a kingdom in us. And the religious leaders wanted to control the culture. That was their focus, much like some elements of the church today, unfortunately. But Jesus was building a kingdom which transcends culture. And I'm personally convinced that if our efforts as the church are to ever have any lasting effect in this world, we're going to have to take our focus off of changing the culture and put it onto establishing his kingdom which will inevitably affect the culture on its own, of course. It's the difference between spending our time and resources and talent and energy trying to make people more moral or spending our time and resources and talent and energy trying to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Simply put, it's the difference between spreading a social agenda or spreading the gospel. 
And ultimately, we have to answer that question. Are we more focused on changing our culture or on building His kingdom? Because the ramifications of that choice are profound and they are eternal. Men use religion to control people. Look at what's happening with ISIS right now in the Middle East. Everywhere they go, they institute Sharia law, which is a set of religious rules intended to control people. And the fact is, every religious tradition has been guilty of some version of that at some point in history, including a long, sad chapter in the Christian tradition. But we're not called to control people or change the culture. We're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ, which is often counter to the culture. Our job is simply to lead people to the truth. It is God who changes their hearts after that, not us. Once He rules in your heart and His kingdom is established in your life, then what drives you, what makes you want to get out of bed every day and become the person that He created you to be is love. Love for God and love for people. You see, when your motivation for doing something good for someone else is a set of, uh, a sense of obligation to a set of rules, even good moral rules, you'll always have to keep score. You'll always have to keep score to make sure that you're doing more good than not. That's how religion works. That's how it controls people. You're constantly having to measure up to a list of rules because none of us is perfect, and then we can never completely measure up to that list because somewhere at some point we're all going to mess something up and then we, we feel really guilty. So we work even harder to keep the rules on the list and our life becomes this giant cycle of trying to be good and then messing up and then feeling really guilty and then trying even harder. Also that we can satisfy the rules. And so as I mentioned earlier, we end up with two groups of people. Those who are constantly trying to keep up with the rules, constantly keeping score to keep themselves on the good side of the list. And those who have said, forget it. I'm tired of trying to satisfy your list. I'm done. And they patently reject religion and search instead for meaning in a world without rules, which is an equally dangerous place to live. And then there's Jesus Christ, who came to this earth knowing that none of us would ever be able to keep all the rules. And in his death and resurrection, he obliterated the list. And in its place, he said, if you'll just love me like I love you and live for me like I've lived for you, then you won't have to worry about a list anymore because I'll be your guide from now on. I'll show you how to live and I'll give you the strength and the peace and the patience and the wisdom and the joy and the virtue that you need to live this life. And by the way, you're still going to mess things up sometimes. But I took care of that too, back there on the cross. So when you mess up, all you have to do is come back to me and I'll be right there to walk with you again. Religion can't offer us that. Only Jesus Christ can. And I, I think that Paul understood this better than most, even more than the elders, the pastors of the church in Jerusalem, probably because of his background. Before Paul became a follower of Christ, he was as religious as a person could be. He'd seen the other side. He tried to live his life by a strict religious code, and it failed him miserably. And then he encountered Jesus Christ, and his life was governed by love, which is why no amount of rumors or persecution or even death could deter Paul 
from telling others about Jesus. But the pastors at Jerusalem, I don't think they were quite as resolved. And they really wanted people to know that they were not a threat to the religious culture of the day. So they hatch a plan to prove to everyone that the rules were safe. Okay? Let's keep reading. Uh, this is verse 23. And the elders are talking here, still giving Paul his marching orders. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Okay, and so the vow these four men were under was a Nazarite vow, uh, which meant they would abstain from eating meat or drinking wine uh, or any other fermented drink. In fact, they couldn't have anything to do with grapes. They couldn't eat grapes, grape skins, raisins, couldn't have any kind of grape juice. Uh, And they couldn't cut their hair for the duration of the vow, which was usually 30 days. And also during that time, they weren't permitted to have any contact with anything that could defile them, like a dead body. So if a family member had passed away uh, during that time, they could have no contact with the body. And then at the end of the 30 days, they would cut off their hair and make certain offerings in the temple. And then their hair would be burned on the altar as an offering to God. And so the elders of the church are telling Paul here, that if he'll take these men to the temple himself and pay for their offerings and their expenses and see to it himself that they fulfill this vow in front of everyone else looking, the people will see that Paul is not a rule breaker. And the irony in all of this is that Paul took Nazarite vows himself. Paul celebrated the feasts and all the ceremonial laws. In fact, Paul never objected to anyone voluntarily following the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Paul kept many religious traditions, but it was out of a heart of love for God and a desire to worship Him by keeping those customs. He never did it simply to honor the rules. It was always to honor God, okay? Let's keep reading. This is the elders continue their plan. Verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So obviously there's a different set of rules for the Gentile believers, which was determined, by the way, at the Jerusalem Council back in chapter 15, when the church in its infancy was trying to determine if the Gentiles had to keep all of the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be considered true Christians. And so if you were here for that message or if you've read it yourself, you remember that it was determined by the church leaders that the Gentiles shouldn't be forced to observe all of the Jewish religious customs other than those either with strong moral implications, namely avoiding sexual immorality of all forms, and some of the food laws, so as not to offend the Jewish believers that lived among them, because those were overt uh, customs. So the elders here are simply reminding Paul what he already knows. And you can almost look at this as a rehearsal for Paul. They're saying, look, Paul, don't forget. This is how you're supposed to act. This is what's expected by those who will be there watching you. And if you get this right, Paul, maybe we can stop the rumors going around town about you. I love the way that N.T. Wright, he's a great scholar and a pastor, one of my favorites. He puts this moment for Paul into perspective for us in his comments on this passage. He writes, speaking for a moment as a church leader, I take great comfort in Paul's uncomfortable position. It's where we often find ourselves, zealots to the left of us, zealots to the right of us, zealots in front of us. 
volley and thunder. They're absolute and undoubted truths. While those of us who have to find a way through with real people who are struggling to live real lives in loyalty to the real Jesus know, but realize we simply cannot explain to such people that these things are more complicated than that. Not because we've made them complicated or because the gospel itself isn't clear or because we're fatally compromised, but because real life in God's world is complicated. And the gospel must not only address that real life from a distance, but must get down on its hands and knees alongside it and embrace it right there with the love of God. Okay, religion is as simple as a list. But life isn't that simple, is it? And here Paul is facing a problem that he surely knows cannot be solved with religious answers. And yet what happens next as we finish up our text for this morning is really a testament to Paul and his humility toward the church and its leadership. Let's read it. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Okay, so Paul not only takes these men as instructed to see to it that they complete their vows, but Paul purifies himself as well. Interestingly enough, that word purified in verse 26 uh, is the ancient uh, Greek word hognizo, which means ceremonially. So in other words, Paul wasn't taking a bath. He was ceremonially cleansing himself to add to this whole public display. This is what the elders wanted him to do because why? He just returned from Asia Minor from a bunch of Gentiles that he was ministering to who were ceremonially unclean according to Jewish custom. And so the Jews were required to purify themselves ceremonially before they could enter the temple anytime they'd been in Gentile territories. And this is an interesting point because Earlier, much earlier, we know that the Lord had spoken to Peter and had been shared with all the apostles and elders concerning the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10, 15. Where God said, what God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, unclean, which validated both the apostolic ministry to the Gentiles and the Gentile status as co-heirs with Jesus Christ in God's kingdom alongside the Jewish believers. But still, knowing all of that, Paul takes great care to follow through with this Jewish ceremonial custom. Okay? Paul does exactly what he's told to do, in other words, even though, as we'll see next week, it didn't have the intended effect. Not even close. In fact, this whole song and dance falls flat, and Paul ends up getting arrested and into a heap of trouble with the authorities. You see, because as well-intentioned as the elders in Jerusalem were, they failed to recognize that even for those who serve religion... Religion will never be enough, even when it's practiced to perfection, because religion alone is completely inadequate for our lives. Okay? Religious behavior works with Jesus Christ in the center of it, because then religious behavior doesn't have to try and achieve what it was never able to do on its own anyway. But as we'll see next week with Paul for the religious people, even when he did exactly what was expected of him, it still wasn't enough because religion alone will never be enough. The realities of our daily lives are far too complex to ever be adequately addressed by religious behavior alone. 
But it doesn't stop many of us from trying, does it? From believing that if we could just get it all together, if we could just get everything on the list buttoned up, for once our needs would be met and we could finally be truly happy. And there's a story about that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. When Jesus was in Judea, he's teaching large crowds of people who were following him. And it says, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother, your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay? Here's a young man who was obviously very wealthy, which means he probably also had great influence. He was deeply religious, and he faithfully kept the list of rules. So why did he have to come to Jesus? Why did he feel that he needed to come to Jesus to find out how he could gain eternal life, how he could be better? He was doing everything that his religious society said he was supposed to do. And on top of that, he was successful and wealthy and influential. So why wasn't that enough? Why did he feel he needed to ask Jesus what else was required of him? Because the list of religious rules is inadequate. It has never been, nor will it ever be enough. And this wealthy young man, he said, hey, look, I've kept all the rules. I've given my tithe every week at church. I serve on the cleaning team. I keep the nursery. I sing on the worship band. I voted for the leading Tea Party candidate. I'm a good conservative Christian. What else do I need to do? And Jesus said, that's great. But it's not enough. And it will never be enough enough. Because what you're looking for cannot be found at the end of a list. In fact, the only way you'll ever find what you're looking for is to forget the list and come follow me. I spent the better part of my life trying to check off a list and I was never satisfied. There were moments, there were certainly good times, some accomplishments, but I kept trying to check off a list. And then one day when I was praying and asking him what I needed to do to experience the fulfillment that I had been longing for most of my life, because I was beginning to realize that checking off items on my list was never going to do it, I knew very clearly in that moment that what he was saying to me was, Hey Rob, sell what you're holding on to. Forget the list. Drop what you're doing and come follow me. And I'd heard those words before, but in that moment for the first time, I remember thinking, what if I actually took the words of Jesus seriously? What would happen? What would happen if I actually did the things that he said to do? And answering those questions led to a series of decisions 
that changed everything. Religion is simple. Life is not. Life requires so much more than we can give on our own. And no matter how good we are at checking off the lists that we try to maintain, it's never going to be enough. And I wonder what would happen if we all traded in our lists for the love of God and began following Him instead of the list? What if we actually did what He told us to do? What would be different? What would be different? The answer is everything. Everything will change. And you'll find what you've been looking for. We're going to pray in just a moment as we close. And I'm going to ask all of you when we do that to bow your heads if you're comfortable with that. Just so people aren't looking around because I know that can be awkward for some. And I'm going to pray that God would establish his kingdom in my heart and in my life. And I'm going to commit today to following him. And the truth is I've prayed this prayer before. And there's nothing wrong with praying it again. But if you're here this morning and you've never prayed a prayer like this, you've never maybe made a decision to follow Christ, maybe you have, and you've messed up some things in your life and you'd like to come back and walk with him again, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And the truth is you can do that out loud in your own words if you like. You can do that silently by simply lifting up your heart and your mind and praying this prayer honestly to him because it's between you and him. And if you make that decision today to follow Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you everything in your life will change. Because his word says that once you invite him to establish his kingdom in you, his spirit in that moment takes up residence inside of you. And he'll begin to guide you through this life in ways that religion never could. And I desperately want that for all of us. Let's pray.